Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, The Matrix Reloaded. In the year 2021, The Matrix is back. Yeah, it's sort of a surprise. Um, like I knew Matrix 4 was in the works for a few years, um, but I didn't know we were actually getting the actors and at least uh, one of the directors back. I thought it was going to be like a whole new thing, which hopefully it is in a certain way, but we don't know that yet because we haven't seen it. It's one of those films that was rumored for ages for, to the point that I just assumed it wasn't actually happening. <laughs> yeah, I was expecting sort of a born thing where it's like, oh, you know, sort of like a it's a it's a new box to uh, play in or something. But well, anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. We are on the second one, The Matrix Reloaded. This is Matt here. This is Luke. This is our sci-fi sanctuary. And, uh, and I've been learning a lot about The Matrix Reloaded recently uh, through some incredible Twitter threads. By our guest today, Tilly Bridges. Tilly, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, I will say I've read, I think I've read all of your Matrix threads now and most of the things you link to within them, but Matt does not Twitter at all, so he doesn't know much of that stuff. I, I don't understand how people, I don't know how you follow a Twitter th thread. That's how out of it I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It's all right. We're here to help. I've been told it's good I'm not on Twitter, so maybe I should stand by that. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do post, I see our, our Twitter says Matt's not on Twitter, which is basically true, but I am the one always posting the Twitters now. So the I'm, I'm tweeting, as the hip kids say. <laughs> that sentence told you everything you need to know about Matt's Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I think I've told the story of me seeing this movie for the first time in the podcast, possibly in the Matrix one. Um, yeah, it, I think it's quite funny. So go again. Okay. Yeah, I was working outdoor science, kind of like, you know, with the hippies and stuff in Maine. And that's when this came out. So a group of us went out there. And at the time, I was teaching outdoors. So I actually did have like a black raincoat and I probably had a black t shirt. And they, I get in there having like a costume contest. So I just borrow someone's sunglasses pop them on and win the costume contest <laughs> so that was pretty exciting because i didn't know i was that prepared when i came <laughs> but um yeah it was a big you know big event when it came out because um the matrix sort of took the ball from the phantom menace we all thought that you know the star wars prequel was going to blow our minds that year and uh it really turned out to be the original matrix so the the build-up 
for the second one was insane. I they I remember they'd have like hour long behind the scene things like cropping up on half the stations on TV beforehand, and um, you know, again, people do talk smack about the Matrix sequels a lot, and um, you know, I big I think a big part of that was the insane buildup of expectations, and um, now Luke, you say you have not seen a a Matrix movie in the theater yet because you were like. 13 when it came out so yeah i think i was 12 when this film came out um but i definitely my parents would have seen it opening night in the theaters and i don't the whole like people don't like the sequels thing i don't remember that being a thing until a little bit later i think when reloaded came out everyone loved it yeah i do remember people mentioning a bit of bloat on it which is kind of true also it's you know it's the middle segment so it doesn't quite have a beginning it doesn't quite have an end by design of course so yeah but uh, like the car chase and everything people were just like whoa so <laughs> i remember like the day the dvd came out it was like i get home from school and it's like okay right we're eating dinner in the living room tonight because you are watching the matrix reloaded like exactly the same as the first one was um but yeah, I've still yet to see a Matrix of theaters because I've never been old enough. Good, we've we've corrected that for you now. Uh, tell me, what was your your first experience on on the first movie or this one or a combination of the two? Um, goodness, it's been so long. Um, I missed the first movie in the theaters. Uh, it was something we just hadn't gotten around to seeing, and all of our friends were like, "Oh my God, how could you have missed this? You have to see it. It's going to change, you know, action and sci-fi movies," which it did. Um, so I think I we first saw it on uh, DVD, but then I was instantly uh, super, super into it for reasons that I didn't understand and would not understand for quite a long time until I figured out that I was trans and connecting with it on its trans allegory level subconsciously. Um, I always really liked both sequels. Um, I know... Yeah, I don't remember at the time what the general consensus about them was, but I do know, yeah, after a while, it definitely the popular belief seemed to be that, you know, the sequels weren't as good and they were kind of bloated and kind of all over the place. And I disagree with that. And um, but I also approach all of it mostly from the trans allegory angle in which I think they've got a lot of really interesting and important things to say. Um, so Reloaded is actually uh, my favorite of the three, uh, although I love them all. So, And and to that thought, uh, Luke, you should probably go on with that story you were telling me last night where you yeah, were so listening to the first one that we did. I re-listened to our episode on The Matrix, the original film, which we did pretty early in this podcast. And listening to it like since we did that podcast i've read up and watched a lot more on the fact that the matrix is a trans allegory and when i was listening to our podcast on the first one it felt really weird how we didn't mention it and there were multiple times where we start to make a point and we don't know how to conclude the point because we were missing that element of the film we would say like yeah oh, i feel like it's trying to say something don't know what though <laughs> so well, I think that makes sense, though, because I I was the same way back when I thought I was a cis man. There was a lot of it that I was uh, almost that exact same way about. And it wasn't until um, realizing I was trans and watching it again and knowing that it, they intended it to be a trans allegory. It was intentional. It's not accidental. Um, so it just blew my mind how 
many layers there are, how deep the allegory goes and what they were saying about the experience of being a trans person. And then it blew my mind again when I sat down to write my notes for the, the threads I'm doing explaining the allegory to people. And I thought, okay, so I'm just gonna pause it and write down a few notes anytime I need to. And I was pausing the movie every five seconds. And that happened with Reloaded too, like all the way through visually, dialogue, character. It's just, they're, they're working on a level, like I'm a writer. And if I could write something a 10th that deep of an allegory for anything in my life, I would be so proud of myself. So it's, uh, it just blows me away how, uh, how much they put into it. It's, it's really astonishing. But I think you really can't notice it if you don't, haven't lived that experience. You're going to miss a lot of what they're saying because you don't have, you know, that life experience to draw from. Mm. And, and we should know when we're saying, oh, it's an allegory. This is like directly from the Wachowskis telling everyone it's an allegory. Yes. So there's yeah. not really room for debate on that. Yeah, this isn't one of those fan theories like, well, actually, Super Mario, the third game is a metaphor for the experience that this they've said in this case. Yes. Um, I will say I don't want to jump ahead to conclusions too much, but I think the first Matrix film is so incredible because on every different level you can enjoy it, it works 100%. If you yep. just want a dumb action film, it's one of the best. And then there's one layer below that, you can go like, oh, this is actually a really smart science fiction idea. But then there's a layer below that where it's like, oh, this gets into these Gnostic ideas and these theories about Plato's cave and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then there's, Absolutely. A, and that works perfectly. And then there's a whole nother level where it's like, oh, this whole thing is a metaphor as well. And at each of those four levels, however you want to engage with the film, it nails it. Right. Because I think That's maybe part the, of the reason the brilliance of it. Maybe the reason the sequels aren't quite as beloved is because although they nail some of those levels, they don't quite nail the others. Like as an action movie, The Matrix Reloaded peaks all of its action in the middle, but has a very talky ending. Mm-hmm. So if you're going into it willing to be like, I'm watching this film for the philosophical aspect, then yeah, Reloaded is still great. Yeah. And if you're going in for the, the trans metaphors, I think you're going to tell us later that yeah, Reloaded is great. But if you're just like, I want another action movie like The Matrix, whereas The Matrix built to that incredible fight with Smith and it was such a great conclusion, this film builds to Neo and the Architect having a very confusing chat. <laughs> well... Yeah, you know, that chat confused me for a really long time, too, until I examined it through the trans allegory, where it makes 100% perfect sense. But I think part of the issue that you're also mentioning, where if you approach it just as an action movie, where it feels strange that the action's all in the middle, is because I think Reloaded and Revolutions are kind of one movie split into two. And so I, it, because it has that cliffhanger ending, you know, it doesn't really end, it sort of stops, and then it picks up again in Revolutions. And so I think it's all leading to that uh the neo and smith uh part two that comes at the mm. end of revolutions you know so i think i think that's why um the structure of it is a little different than maybe what people anticipated the, uh, the expectations whole, will get you every time the whole film the two sequels back to back thing uh, i guess back to the future had done it star wars kind of did it but this film was like the first one where they were shot basically as one film as you say yeah I yeah they did that with um superman and superman 2 the originals way back oh yeah and they, the second film they throw the in at the start yeah yeah that one had a few stumbles i remember 
watching this a few yeah with the the donner cut all that but um with this one watching it this time around it, it really did strike me like if this if the matrix had actually come out say let's three three years ago you know 2019 or something we'd be looking at like you know one of those uh you know premium uh 10 episode runs i think of this now because you can do things of the scope on television now and and the narrative they're looking for is kind of that level of detail so then you have a you know one episode super actiony one episode super talky that works for tv and 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 it works in this movie too you just gotta you know readjust your attention span a little bit when you talk about reloaded and revolutions being essentially one film cut in half i've definitely heard in interviews that that was the plan. The plan was one prequel, one sequel. But the studio insisted the full cast is in all three films. So there had to be two sequels. I don't and, know how, how true or how well, I, I, I think don't, early that was. I don't remember the, the release dates either, but I feel like they were really close together. Like, I think they were both out the same year, like yeah, six a, months apart or something. Right? Of months, yeah. And apparently yeah. Um, they wanted it to be even quicker. They wanted it to be a matter of weeks. Right. Which makes sense in this case. I mean, you know, there's pluses and minuses to doing your movie that way. Um, really quick, I, I guess I'm, you know, some people listening maybe haven't watched it recently, although you, you probably should. But um, I will try and run down the plot. You know, this one was a little bit intimidating, right, with all the uh, the bells and whistles and wheels turning. So we'll, okay. we'll, we'll see where we go here. You can just give us the surface level plot because I'm sure we'll get deeper into it. Sirius has received information that details the imminent peril of a machine attack upon the surviving human colony of Zion. All of the vessels return to Zion to plan their next move, including the manifest of the Nebuchadnezzar, including our stalwart heroes of the previous film, Neo, Trinity, and Morpheus. Morpheus has insisted that one ship remain as the sentinel to receive a possible transmission from the Oracle. While waiting, a rave orgy ensues in the deepest caverns of Zion, Eventually, a communique is intercepted. Neo embarks upon a journey that reveals the salient point that the Oracle is but a program of the machines. Regardless, she insists that Neo track down the Keymaster and confront the source of the Matrix. In the interim, the former Agent Smith has become a rogue program. He takes violent retaliation against Neo, multiplying himself with his newfound ability to imprint himself upon the unwitting denizens of the Matrix. Neo is able to mount a successful retreat, and he and his group of associates attempt to free the Keymaster from the clutches of the Merovingian program. This proves to be quite a feat, with the specter of strange ghost programs and excessive vehicular battles serving as obstacles to achieve their intended results. Once Neo goes full Superman, the Zionites have the key master in their presence, but achieving the end of communion with the source of the Matrix will require a heist-like plan. Once one crew has served defeat by the machines, Trinity must enter the Matrix to ensure that the plan plays out, sacrificing herself in the process. Neo confronts the architect, who tells all and serves Neo with a choice of ensuring the continuation of the human race or saving his lady from the clutches of cruel fate. Neo chooses love. Once detached from the Matrix, our heroes are confronted with a devastating assault from the machines. Neo displays some of his Matrix powers in the real world to stop them, and the effort places him in a state of coma. 
He is shepherded to the sick bay of a Zion ship right alongside a manifestation of Smith that has found his way outside the Matrix. We are promised with the conclusion before Rage Against the Machine starts blasting along with the closing credits. needed more vis-a-vis and yeah i know I, I you know i know it, it needed more time because i wrote it at 1 30 last night so fair enough <laughs> <laughs> just yeah yeah i, I knew i was kind of half arson it but uh you know you it, took me, it took me a second to realize you were doing the architect and i was like why is matt rushing so hard <laughs> also because it was really long yeah <laughs> <laughs> um we usually let's do a quick chit chat about the actors. Uh, we, we did a fair amount of talk in the um, in the first one, but we, we have a couple new faces here. Um, and Luke, I might want to bat the ball in your corner for that because I don't have names on the tip of my brain. Uh, I have got the IMTB up. So, I mean, we could start with the obvious ones, right? Like you've got your Keanu Reeves and everyone coming back. Keanu um, does not woe in this, does he? This is his first non-woe. Yeah, he's 100% playing, like, second-phase Keanu in this one. Yeah, because we talked about the first there's one being kind of zero the Ted here. <laughs> there, well, yeah, I, I always say the first film, he starts as Ted and ends as Neo. But here he's just playing Neo, which is the role he would play until John Wick, basically. I, I guess in a couple of the Carrie Ann Moss roles where he, he does let his deflectors down, there, there's a shade of Ted. But yeah, yeah, we're pretty much just full Neo at this point, you know. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, is there anything else you want to go on uh, about him? It's like people think about Keanu all the time on a general basis, it seems. And Carrie yeah. Ann Moss is back on people's minds since she's appearing in, the, you know, the Matrix for the resurrection or whatever. Yeah, I mean, those two are both great. Um, but I don't feel like I have a lot to say about them as actors in this one. Tilly, do you have any strong feelings about Keanu and Carrie as actors in this film? Um, not really. I mean, I think they both served their roles well and they did what they were supposed to. And, you know, I, too, just approaching it from, again, from the allegory aspect that they're each an aspect of the same person and reflecting off of each other. So um, they sort of, I mean, I think they, they work really great together. Um, going back to even the first movie, casting the two of them in those specific roles, I think was really, really good uh, for a lot of reasons. And it continues through here and through revolutions. They just, um, they're perfect together as, as a pair. Yeah, I, I was sort of noting this time. I was like, actually, they are quite similar looking when you start to think yep. about it. So, and, and on the on the Nebuchadnezzar, where they're both in the gray sweatshirts, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. they are like almost twin looking at that point, with different haircuts, of course. But hey, Keanu's rocked that other uh, Carrie's haircut in the past. So, <laughs> the actor I think gets to make a big jump between 
the second, the first film in the sequels is Lawrence Fishburne, because we That's... very rarely get to see Morpheus show humanity in the first film. Yeah, when they're like, oh, Morpheus is crazy. By the end of the, this film, you're like, yeah, Morpheus is kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like he is his level of obsession. Because, yeah, the first one, he presents it like this is the way it is. And you find out in this one, he's actually pretty much of a minority uh, opinion there. I mean, and even when Neo tells him to his face, that's not how it is. He stays steadfast. Which, again is very much part of the allegory but on yeah, the surface 100%. on the surface level it does mean that Lawrence Fishburne gets to like act his ass off in these sequels <laughs> like you know by the end of the whole thing which I, I mean we can talk both movies a little bit but um you know by the end of the movie it's like he's kind of right but he's kind of wrong <laughs> well it, it turns out he just had to have faith in Neo and not all the prophecy stuff yeah yeah I made a, a note just uh, you know we just watched dune and well we all just well uh, luke and i recently reread re or i read dune for the first time but it did start to make me think like the machines are throwing prophecies around like benny jesuits or something you know yeah <laughs> um as far as the the new actors the crew of course uh was was pretty well off in the first film so we get a new crew in this one <laughs> And that was sort of my my Luke. Well, the new crew, the new crew, we basically just get Link in terms of the Nebuchadnezzar crew. Yeah, oh, I'm thinking. Okay, yeah, I'm thinking of Jay Pinkett Smith, but she's a different crew, isn't she? She's a yeah, because then. So. so, I have the weird. For me, I'm the whole. The crews of the other ships feel like much more significant characters than they actually are in this film, because I played into the Matrix at the same time. Right. <laughs> So a little bit with the the power plant was the game, right? Like yeah, his whole mission there, yeah. So yeah, you get like three seconds of action in the film for that, but for me that was like the exciting climactic mission of the video game that I played. Yeah. So yeah, for me, like, um, and also when we played it, my dad played Niobe, and I played through as Ghost, and I don't even think Ghost gets a line in this film. <laughs> So I guess that was a, a downer. Yeah, this would have been a period of time where I was definitely not gaming because I was, again, living in a with the hippies and in, in a cabin. So, <laughs> but like talking about how big this film was when it came out, this was the period where it was like, you got the new movie, you've also got the video game in stores. But you know that's part of the story. You got to play that as well. And there's the Animatrix. You got to watch that if you really want to get it. And there's probably some comic books. You got to read those. And it was a huge, you know multimedia event but i think the directors were involved in most of that stuff yeah it's not like today where um or some of the star wars things where it's like here's the film and a bunch of other people have been given free reign to give you extra content but you know george lucas is involved to the point that someone showed him and he went yep that's what happened he let the holiday special happen yeah there you go <laughs> They're like every now and then there'll be a new Star Wars comic book or game and it will say like with a story approved by George Lucas. But it literally means they went, hey, George, did Darth Vader have a secret apprentice? Yeah, got it. And like that's the extent of his involvement. Why not? <laughs> um, I, I guess there's not a whole lot to get into with the actors. It is, you know, pretty much plot driven and well, as you know, allegory driven, all of that sort of thing. The, the character... I mean, you know, in the most part, they are more 
of archetypes than anything else. Like you, you, there's other characters we haven't mentioned, like the Merovingian and Persephone, and they're memorable and great performances. But I remember the characters. I don't remember the actors really. Um, In, yeah, they're literally Hugo programs. Weaving, Hugo Weaving doing his villain shit is like. In this one, and especially the next one, turned up, you know, turned up to 11 and then turned up to 12. And, like, I always forget Hugo Weaving is just an actor because Smith is such, you so believe he's a computer program. Yeah, as well, say these characters are all programs, right? Which, which we are, you know, I mean, that's the whole thing, like how conscious are or aren't they? Because we meet the uh, the family at the end who do seem quite conscious and have insights and things. Whereas, you know, the Merovingian, though, I guess he is an earlier program and he just he's intentionally cardboard, mm-hmm. just mustache twirling villainy, not not to the Smith levels. Uh, Smith is twirling something else entirely, I guess. But I don't. Yeah. But um. Yeah, you know, it's, it is interesting that the older programs seem to be the ones that are less um, conscious. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like he acts like an early video game enemy. He just consume, expand, consume, expand. He doesn't think beyond that. Right, so the corporations too, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> consume and, and you know, expand all of that. So, But for the most part, he is on Simmer. Like you definitely think of smith in the first one you think of smith and revolutions he you know and he does cool stuff here uh but he's not that integral to the plot like i kind of had to like shoehorn him into my own summary that finale (laughs) bit with the where they're going down the corridor to find the door smith shows up just to remind you hey don't forget smith exists it'll be important next time I was actually confused, I think, coming out of the movie the first time by a twist. I was like, why was that a big reveal? And someone was like, that was the human that Smith took over. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I yeah. <laughs> and him as well. But yeah, a lot of Smith stuff, they're just dropping seeds so that he can be relevant next time. Again, I did I'm notice the-, um, the car chase, they fight agents. And it's, they don't make a big deal of it or anything, but that's basically the last time agents show up in the series. Yeah, yeah, they're completely irrelevant by the third one. Yeah, oh, Smith, right? <laughs> and and it, it's it, you know it's hard to stop calling Smith an agent. It just seems to be part of his name, but you know it's not. You do have to start saying Smith or something. Yeah. Um, let's. I guess we should talk just a little design uh, since you brought. Well, up I was to say if we've chase. done we've done actors, so we should do characters. But I mean, me and you don't need to tell people who the surface level characters are. This is probably a time. If Chili, do you want to tell us who the characters are as part of the metaphor? Okay, well, in um, the trans allegory, uh, a lot of this is set up in the first movie. Um, so, uh, but um, Neo is, I mean, Neo is himself, but he's also sort of his own ego. And uh, Trinity is his self-actualization. She is the trans woman that he is on the inside. And uh, Morpheus is his superego or his subconscious, um, the thing that's been telling him all along, hey, you're trans, pay attention to this and do something about it. And um, sort of driving him to become self-actualized. 
let's see what else Th that still holds true through all three of the movies um so that part doesn't change um link in this movie sort of functions as neo's doubt um in the first movie uh neo's doubt was cypher and it was his doubt about whether or not he was trans because the first movie is all about the journey of accepting that you are trans and deciding that you want to transition to be your true self and the second movie uh reloaded is all about why did I choose to transition? Like Neo's always asking that question through this movie. Why, why, why? And that why is why did I choose to transition when it has made my life so hard? Because once you do transition and you come out, you notice that the entire world is out to get you. It is a constant battle every day, all day on a thousand different fronts, just trying to exist in this world. And so when that happens, you get so tired, you get so beaten down and it can make you think, why did I do this to myself? Why, you know, why would I still have done this knowing how hard it was going to be? Um, and so in this movie, that's what uh, Link represents uh, the doubt of, should I have done this in the first place? Was this the right decision? I am trans, but was it right to, to transition to self-actualize myself? Um, the Merovingian and Persephone uh, represent a trans person who rejected their transness, um, made the opposite choice from Neo. So uh, Persephone is the trans woman that the Merovingian is on the inside, that he has stolen away from the world, which is you know, what the Persephone myth leads to. She was stolen from the world and hidden away. Um, she's the opposite of everything he is in so many ways. Um, and so everything with him is about appearances, he wants to appear to know what he's talking about. He wants to appear to be rich and wealthy and powerful. And he, he likes French because it sounds fancy, not because it is fancy, but because it's, it's, it's everything about him revolves around appearances because he wants you to accept his appearance of a cis white man because it gives him more power in standing in the world. And trans people have to give up that power when we transition. When we, when we tell the world, hey, we're not cisgender. Um, so you lose a lot of, uh, of ability to have any say in society when that happens, because there's so few of us, we can't really affect political change on our own. We have to rely on cis people to give us the rights that we deserve and everything like that. So um, it gets very complex. Um, the Oracle is Neo's heart uh, that he goes to for answers. And uh, that tracks through all three movies as well. Um, Let's see, who else am I forgetting? Um, I guess the, you haven't really mentioned the villains in terms of Smith and the agents and the system. Right. So Smith is, in the first movie, Smith just represents society and the way society is out to get us. In this movie, he's sort of changing. He has seen what Neo has done, his self-acceptance, his choosing to say, I don't care that the world is going to come for me. This is who I am and I have to be myself. And it's really pissed him off because why do you get to break the rules when I don't? And so what you see here uh, in this movie is Smith is sort of uh, becoming this aspect of society that gets really mad at us for being who we are, not just not giving us rights or not um, allowing us things by default, which is the way society is set up, but choosing to actively harm us. He's, it's sort of getting into um, transphobia and the way people specifically legislate against us to do nothing except hurt us, like trying to take uh, health care away from trans kids, to try to prevent uh, trans people from playing sports as their true gender, uh, when all the science says 
there's absolutely no advantage to that whatsoever. Um, so uh, he's sort of morphing into that and you get into a lot of that in the third movie is about transphobia of society and internalized transphobia that society puts into us. Um, and then there's, who did I forget? I'm forgetting somebody. Uh, the architect, maybe? Well, um, the architect, yeah. Well, the architect is the most uh, blatant surface level the architect is just the architect. He's an old cis white man. They're the people who set the society up this way. So he is exactly what he appears to be. He, in the allegory and in the surface world, um, he's exactly the same. So. And watching it now, it's like, oh, now I understand why they chose such a Colonel Sanders looking motherfucker. Like, right? <laughs> well, he's just kind he's of really good. His, yeah. He's in his unreachable citadel. Though I do have to throw out that whenever I see this movie now, I'm always surprised not to find Will Ferrell up there. <laughs> yeah, kind of same. <laughs> but um, I, I guess there's a few, I, I, since we're painting, since the metaphor is painted that wide, um, a couple of ones that I was kind of wondering about are, are those, do those, do those ghost guys fit into the metaphor because i never they do yeah um not as like an aspect of society or something but one thing that's really difficult for uh trans folks is anything having to deal with the past because like here's the easiest way to explain it is that uh i know that uh, uh matt you're not on twitter but every once in a while this thing comes around on twitter where people start they're like post a picture of you from 15 years ago and a picture from now and trans people often can't do that because we were not ourselves 15 years ago. And in fact, just seeing a photo of ourselves from back then can give us really, really bad dysphoria. Um, and so it's like, I have uh, wedding pictures with my wife and they're wonderful. It was the happiest day of my life, but I'm dressed as a cis man, which is how I presented at the time of what I thought I was. And so now, even though that picture brings me so much joy from this happy day, it's tainted because that wasn't really me. And I'll never, I'll never get a picture from my wedding day with my wife with me in it. It was that guy that I was pretending to be, that man costume I was wearing. And so the past is a really difficult thing that um, for a lot of trans people. And so the ghosts represent um, that aspect of our history because what are ghosts? They're dead things from the past, right? They come back to haunt you and our pasts do haunt us in a lot of ways and you have to struggle and fight against them and, but you can't, you can't ever get rid of it. You can't ever change it. And if you note that in the movie, the, uh, the ghosts, the ghost twins, they don't actually die. There's an explosion and they get shot off into the air and you never see them again, but they're not dead. You can't kill the past. You can't change the past. You have to find a way to deal with it. Um, so they fit in that way. And that's why also um, everything around the Merovingian, that whole fight in the stairwell is the only fight in all three movies where there's old stuff everywhere. There's old weapons, there's old statues, everything is old. That's what the Merovingian surrounds himself with because they're the things that tell him, well, okay, I guess I have to explain a little more about the Merovingian and that he believes that he doesn't have a choice to transition, right? Okay, so if he's a trans person who chose not to, he said, I am trans, but there's nothing I can do about it because if I transition, society will take away all of my power. I will lose, trans people lose families, they lose jobs, they lose money, they lose housing, they lose everything so often. And so he felt he didn't have a choice to do that, that society took that choice away from him. 
Now, that's not true. It, society does take those things and it makes it really difficult, but you still have the choice to do it if you want. So he's one of those people that tells himself lies to make himself feel better. Well, I didn't have a choice. That's a lie, but he's what he needs to tell himself to believe that he did the only thing he could. And so he surrounds himself with people and things like the ghosts and old things that uphold the old ways of the, the binary you're only born a man or a woman and that's it uh, of the matrix. So he does all of that to just build this like house of cards that's around him. That's it's really built on lies. And, you know, you see that kind of come tumbling down at the end when uh, he kind of loses it. And the way he transitions to what you see him as in revolutions is uh, kind of extraordinary. So, uh, but that's a, a different story for another time. But so, yes, that's a very long winded way of saying the ghosts tie in to uh, what it's saying at large about how difficult the past is for trans people to deal with. Okay. That's great. I thought I was ask asking too obscure a question. So right Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> two small points from your threads that I, I really liked. Um, right at the start of Reloaded, when Trinity is fighting her way into the complex. Yeah. You point out that any time we see our heroes fighting the system, be that agents or just general cops and stuff, it's always white men. Yeah. And that's such a deliberate choice because, yeah, they're fighting the system which keeps them down, which is right. the system of, you know, straight cis and white it's, men. It's an extra deliberate choice when you look at the cast, especially for Reloaded and how diverse and inclusive it is. There are people of so many... Uh, races and genders included in this movie. And so then it's not some coincidence that every guard, every cop, every agent is a cis white man. Uh, that's by design because that's what's the, those, that's who set up the cis binary matrix of society to favor themselves. And they're the ones with the most interest in keeping the system going because they benefit the most from it. But me and Matt pointed out in the first film that the Matrix is like the gold standard for casting diverse actors. Right. Like you could tell they went out of their way to do it. And Zion in particular, Zion, there came a bit of my old Southern accent. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Zion, it, it seems very, I mean, they're living underground in a horrible cave. But uh, as far as like who's living there, it is like insanely inclusive for everyone. Because sometimes it gets to a point where, you know, maybe someone, casting would try so hard to you know just not balance everything as well as they do in the matrix movies mm -hmm. well yeah um, like when we watched um when worlds collide we were like wow so the the final capsule of humans alive is just all these white people whereas matrix does it right like yeah this is the last of humanity and it contains all of humanity and yeah, that, that's, a, that's a big plus there. But yeah, I was also, even, you know, watching the movie Two Nights Ago the, with Neo's choice at the end on which door to to go out of, um, I, I guess that's where it's starting to stick out a little more on the levels uh, you were talking about earlier, Luke, because, uh, you know, once you apply the metaphor, it is insanely clear on both levels. Right, yeah. Now, the other, the other one I briefly wanted to mention before we move on from talking about the cast and the characters, um, when me and Matt talked about the first film, we were at the point, the time we did that, I really wanted to talk about the, the co-opting of the red pill and the whole, yeah. the alt-right thing and everything. Um, 
because I wasn't aware of the trans allegory, I was like, this film seems like it's saying, oh, straight white men are the oppressed ones. And that's why these people took it that way. But like the Wachowskis saw that coming because as you pointed out, Smith's character is these outright shitheads who've taken the red pill and said, oh, that means that I get to be a rebel by fighting right. for exactly the status quo. Exactly. That's exactly the thing. Yeah. In um, the, both the first Matrix movie and in Reloaded. Um, and it's probably also in Revolution Summer, but I haven't done my notes on that yet. So I haven't noticed the moment. But in each of those, the, the first two anyway, there's a call out moment where they see the co-opting of it coming. They see the the MRA guys out there and they're like, you're just tools of the system that you don't even realize. This system is hurting you too. You're doing its bidding by thinking you're outside of it, but you're doing exactly what it wants you to do. You're not free what, whatsoever. You're just a, a literal tool of the system. So it's a, a wake up call for everybody. Um, you know, the cis binary of, uh, matrix of society hurts cis people too in a lot of ways um so you know it's it's wrapped up in toxic masculinity it's wrapped up in uh those horrible uh beauty standards that women are held to you know where you know there are cis women who have broad shoulders or bigger jawlines and they get crap for it because they don't fit into those neat narrow little boxes well you're not small you're not you know skinny you have to look a certain way and so it, it it's it's detrimental to everybody um and that's what i think the movies are trying to get folks to wake up and see that even if you're cisgendered this it's hurting you too so you know you're either you either want to fix things or you're upholding the system even if you're not aware of the system even if you don't like the system but you're not doing anything to change it you're upholding it uh, and that's just how it's set up to be. I did note that uh, at least one of the posters for the new one, uh, just white background, red pill, blue pill on it. I was like, oh, they, they are going to own it, I guess. I really hope they, they, they address it directly in the, uh, in the new movie. Yeah, because I would, I would just love that. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say I can't imagine they wouldn't. Um, I, I, I guess uh, the the whole black pill is is out of the Matrix picture, or or maybe it's not. Hey, who knows what we're gonna get? The uh, that's the 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 nihilism pill, if I'm correct. I so I've talked to Luke before, where I, I I've lost track of of what the pills mean anymore. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know a few years ago, was it Maroon Five put out red pill blues, and people are like, uh, you don't. Eh, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I saw an interaction, I think this is a couple of years back now, where someone was tweeting about the red pill and Lily Wachowski replied, like, that's not what the red pill means. Uh, who are you to tell me? And she's like, I created the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a, a, a great um, bit on Twitter going around with Elon Musk and Ivanka Trump talking about how they were red pilled and everyone needed to wake up and Lily Wachowski just replied to both of them and said F you and it just it blew up everywhere and it was just amazing I'm like yeah go kick their asses so
I'm just thinking my life because you know when I saw the Matrix, I was I was uh, 20, and you know society like like we just you know like again it wasn't really on the uh, the forefront of of any thing so i'm thinking one of the, my first exposure to i guess the whole um you know trans idiom would have been um wendy carlos I'm, I'm just wondering what kind of a if that is a kind of a figurehead in in the movement because uh she did the it looks staring weird uh she did the clockwork orange soundtrack and a bunch of early synthesizer stuff i mean she's definitely an early um out pioneer i guess you could say because not a lot there were way less people out in the past because it was much less safe to be you know out and trans and also because um this is actually something that uh reloaded itself gets into with neo um, examining why he chose to transition and um i always point to i made this big post when i came out as trans and in it i had to thank all of the trans people that inspired me to think I could be myself and still exist in this world. It was okay to be trans because they were also writers. They were also worked in comics and television and all of the fields I want to work in. And they're out there making it happen and living as themselves. And they let you know you can do it too. And so the more people who come out as trans inspires other people to think it's okay for me to be trans too. It's, it, it, that works with representation of anything. You know, it's one of my favorite representation stories. If you go back to... Um, Nichelle Nichols on the original Star Trek wanted to leave the show and Martin Luther King talked her into staying because he said you don't know how important you are to all of the the, the black children out there watching this they get to see you on the bridge an equal of these white men you know doing important things and it led directly to um, Mae Jemison who was the first uh, American black astronaut in space uh, female and so um, if you can see it you know that it's possible for you to be it, right? And so that's um, ties directly in with uh, the realization that Neo comes to is that he has to have transitioned. He has to be out and be himself, even though it makes life so hard because not only does he love himself enough to be his true self, but others need to see him do that too so that they can be their true selves. And so that's why uh, I think you see so many more um, trans people today is because gradually over time, the more of us that come out and have visible lives, the more of us see, oh, that's okay. It's okay if I'm trans, I can, I can do this too. And so um, it all just, yeah, it all sort of ties together that way. Well, you pointed out in the film, um, there's the character, the kid who comes up to me, Neo, yes. and he's thanking him, oh, you saved me, you saved me. And he was like, you saved yourself because all Neo did was exist. Exactly. But just existing in a system that is designed to get you to not exist or to hide your true existence away from the world and not show it to anybody, just existing is an act of resistance. It is a fight. And other people see that. And then they're like, I can do it too. If you can do it, I can do it. And so that's exactly what that whole bit with the kid is about. He was a person that saw, hey, I can do it because Neo did it. I can be myself too. Which is what Neo said he's going to do at the end of the first film. Mm -hmm. um, and something I exactly. noticed watching it this time, um, I think this film is only supposed to be six months after the first. That's what oh, really? the wiki said. Because <laughs> um, Morpheus says a line like, we freed more minds in the past six months than in the, the last six years. 
was like, yeah, it feels like more time has passed than that. Maybe just because the actors have aged a lot more than that. But that is a surprisingly short amount of time, considering this film and the second one take place over a matter of days. Right. So the whole Matrix trilogy is only like basically a six month affair. Yeah, I, maybe they wanted to, you know, avoid that Star Wars space where it's like it's an undefined amount of time later when you get to the sequel. Um, yeah, and then you can write 30 books in between if you want to. Exactly. Where this, oh, well, they wrote the 30 books in between. They did the Animatrix. Although, like you were mentioning, that, that had most of the ideas for the prequel in it. So they did get those ideas out. And it could have been an interesting movie, but... Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a different podcast, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I went up. Nope, I'm doing I, my supercuts ready for Matt losing his thought again. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not even 6 a.m. this week. It's almost eight. You should be completely awake. Unacceptable. Yeah. I lose my points in the middle of any day, you know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess let's do just before, uh, a little bit of speculation I, I think it's fair to do that in our matrix month about maybe what we'd want to see in the new one or or where the metaphor could be going this is a good time to focus on that in particular for for the new one um tilly do you have any expectations or wishes of where this thing's going uh no not really i have i approach um movies television comics any kind of story uh, a lot different than a lot of other people, I guess. And maybe it's because I'm a writer, but I want to experience the story that the creators want to tell me. So I try to not go in with expectations uh, because then it's always a good way to be let down because nobody's ever going to give you exactly what you might have thought. Hey, it would be cool if it was X in your head. You're never going to get exactly that. And then you might be disappointed. So I tried to stay away from that. Um, I try to just go in clean and experience whatever it is that they're trying to tell me. Um, I do. The one thing I really do hope, though, that we already addressed is that they do address the, how the um, the red pill thing has sort of been uh, co-opted exactly as they predicted it would have been. Um, and uh, I hope they have something, um, you know, uh, to say about that. Um, I also thought I, ha I did have a thought about uh, the surface level sci-fi story a while back, and I was thinking you know, how uh, payphones and landlines are so important to the first three movies, uh, but you don't see them at all nowadays. And mm -hmm. if the Matrix kept going, that is exactly what the machines would have done to try to prevent this from happening again is phase out landlines, right? And now everything's all cells and cells you can't get in or out of the Matrix with. So I was like, that could be a, uh, you know, a fun thing for them to play with in the surface level story. But um, outside of that, yeah, I'm just, uh, I don't know, because I feel like the first three movies um, tell a very complete story. And like Revolutions is all about the future or where they, they hope uh, trans people in society can go. And Reloaded is very much about living as trans. And the first one is very much about coming to the decision that you're, or realizing that you're trans and deciding to transition. And so they kind of represent like the past, present and future. And so 
uh, the fourth one, uh, Resurrections, is like completely outside that. So I, I'm just excited to see uh, what they have planned. I, I honestly don't know, and I'm really looking forward to it. The enough, there was enough from uh, the first trailer that I'm, I don't see it any way that the, the allegory is not going to factor in some way, uh, probably just as importantly as in the first three, where if you removed it, they wouldn't even be the same movies. So um, I'm really excited to see uh, what, what they have to say about it now, because even now, uh, being trans in the world has changed so much. Uh, even the Wachowskis themselves are out as trans now, and they weren't when the movies were coming out, you know? And so that changes the context of it, that changes what they have to say about it. Uh, like if they were out as trans back when the original trilogy were made, not only do I think those movies probably wouldn't have gotten made, but they wouldn't have been the same movies that they are because everyone would have known mm. ahead of time. You know, I think they work so well because they couldn't be out because they had all of this that they were bottling up that they needed to say. Um, and so when you pull that out, it's going to change the entire context of what you have to say and how you have to say it. So uh, I think it's going to be very different from the first three uh, but I'm very excited for it. I think the reason I am so excited is that I have absolutely no idea what to expect. Yeah. I've watched that first trailer. I hope I don't see anything else now until I sit down <laughs> in the theater to watch the film. But I don't have a clue. And that's great. When was the last time I watched a film and I didn't have an app, a single clue what was going to happen? Like, yeah. I'll tell you, the, the film that's going to disappoint me this December is Spider-Man because I've got ridiculous expectations. <laughs> See, like, those if, expectations, if get, they always get, get you. four hours of all three Spider-Men hanging out, then, like... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think maybe that's why the second and third Matrix have a little bit of a sketchy reputation is because people went in with such strong expectations. And I especially, well, I... You know, I was in the southeast of uh, America, right? Um, Atlanta's somewhat progressive. A Athens is, but outside of that, it, it's not. Uh, so people very much took the first Matrix and put a very Judeo-Christian metaphor layer on it, which the second and third movie, you know, shatters against a wall, which I think is fantastic because um, you can easily get into, you know, things about Buddhism. There's some, uh, again, there's uh, so many facets to take the movie in but um yeah with Wachowski's life you know uh like the fact that they have come out as trans now that just makes that so much more central to this where no really nobody noticed at the time or not many I mean some people I'm sure did but uh you know 95 percent of the population probably didn't we didn't notice but I think subconsciously we must have done because there are so many little things which are really resonant in those films but you don't know why. The obvious one is the whole time um, Smith dead names Neo for the whole trilogy. Yeah. And that feels wrong. You hate him for it. But at the time, I didn't know why I hated him for it. Well, right. But I think that's even a thing that um, it's not even just a trans thing, because that is a, a thing that like even tons of cis people have to deal with. Because like, you know, uh, if you know somebody whose name was uh, well, I'll just go by uh, my stepdad. His first name is Richard and his middle name was Williams, but he went by Bill, which is short for William, his middle name. But if you called him Richard, that would be like this sign of disrespect because that's not what he preferred to be called. And so that mm. would anger you. That would anger anybody. But well, don't, don't call him that. He doesn't want to be called that. And that's exactly, that's all it is with trans people. Don't call me that. That's not my name. Call me what my name is. 
you know, the, the re my real name, call me, you know, if somebody tells you, this is what I go by, if you don't call them that, you're, you know, a jerk, a, a, a terrible person, pretty much. So it's, yeah. That's something one of our colleagues struggled with. Um, me and Matt work as English teachers in Japan. And, oh, you know, cool. Some Japanese names are hard to pronounce when you're a native English speaker or an American in particular. But one of our colleagues, he would never say any kid's name right. Mm. <laughs> and they were always so mad at him and he wouldn't understand why. He'd be like, well, I'm saying what it says. I was like, yeah, but you're not saying what they told you to say. And it's, it's only small things. But he would, he would say it the American way and never adapt from how he decided to say it. Right. And I'm, when he left and I took over some of his classes, I was getting a round of applause just for pronouncing kids' names correctly. But see, I mean, that goes to show you how important it is to people, right? It meant so much to them that you get, showed them the respect to just learn how to say their names and call them what they want to be called. And that's that's all that trans people want, you know, the same respect yeah. cis people want. And that's it. So. I'm sitting here wondering if I'm. Yeah, because with a, a lot of students, I do say their names mostly correctly. Uh, I, I was telling Luke, I, you know, called the brother his brother's name, but that's whatever. But. I don't tend to go for the the shortcut names, you know, like um, what, what's a good name? Um, like if you've got a Fubito calling him Fumi or 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 yeah, because, you know, the some of the Japanese stuff be like Fuchan, right? Mm. <laughs> so I'm like, should I? I don't really feel I feel like as a teacher, I should be slightly formal in my naming. I, I don't know. And also, I, you know, it's a culture thing in that case. I'm not. I'm not a Japanese woman, so I don't know if I can actually get away with that. But that is what I hear everyone else calling this person. But I'll, they're, I'll they're go five. To do it and, if the kid asks me to. Yeah. Okay. If the kid asked me to, of course. I guess that's the point. They're five, and they don't. They didn't ask you to call yeah. them something in particular. So maybe that's something about it as well. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's what it always goes back to, right? If you're not sure, just ask. Just ask yeah, the yeah. person what they prefer. It, it works the same thing. Like you get a lot of this uh, from people with uh, pronouns. Oh, I don't know what you just ask. Say, what What are your pronouns? Oh, now you know, and it's done. And you don't have to worry about it. It's not a bad thing to ask if you don't know. In fact, people will often, I mean, I, I can't speak for everybody, but often it's it shows that you care, that you're respecting the person and you want to get it right. And so if people ask, I am happy that they cared enough to want to be correct. Um, uh, I'm an, sort of an ardent Trekkie, so I, I'd be oh, remiss to ask. Okay, so I'm going to assume you got, and Luke, sorry, I know you have not, but uh, season three of Discovery, where yeah, really delves into that. And, and again, as, um, you know, as a, a, a straight white guy, you know, that actually, like, maybe it seems obvious to someone who's trans, but to me, yeah, it is sort of like, oh, yeah, I didn't quite think about this. It actually is teaching me something. So, you know, you kind of got to throw out Trek, of course, is always uh, relatively forward thinking in that matter. But, you know, I, yeah. I didn't love Discovery season three, but it did. I did like some of it, but, um, you know, it did teach me something I really wasn't familiar with. So. I yeah, mean, I media has that power, that. too, right? You know, it, it can open minds. It can open hearts when you when you're exposed to this thing, because, you know, like a lot of people, if you grow up around it, it's not a big deal. But there's so many people who don't like even for me, I grew up in a tiny town in the Midwest and I didn't even know what 
the word transgender meant until I was probably in my 20s. I didn't know it was a thing you could be. So there was no way I could have figured it out when I was a kid. And even if I did, I wasn't in a uh, home situation that would have been welcoming to me trying to explore and figure out who I really was. And so the, but you know, things like this, when you see it on TV, when you see it in movies, when you read it in books and comics, or you hear it in podcasts, it can, it, it starts to open people's, you know, minds. I think it was like um, uh, the Modern Family Show um, had a, a gay male couple. And over the course of that show, which became really, really popular, right? Uh, you could see it was during the course of that show where the position on marriage equality started to shift in this country, in the in the United States, where people started to think gay people do deserve the same rights as straight people do, because they're seeing beamed into their homes every week, these two guys who just love each other and they're just normal people like everybody else, right? And they deserve to be as happy and, you know, uh, have the same rights as every other person does. And so... Um, just stuff like that, just having it out there can make a world of difference. Well, that's actually a, one of the big points the Matrix films make is that because people, the concept of being in a computer program that's controlling you, if you're not aware that that's even a thing that can be happening, there's no way that you can know you're being held and that you're not living your true life. And so right. the first step is just finding out that this thing exists in the first place. Right, exactly. And that's like, like when I thought I was cisgender, even though it didn't make sense that I was and the whole world didn't make sense to me. And I felt like I was wearing a costume every day of my life. I didn't know that there was, again, anything else you could be other than you're born a boy or you're born a girl. And that's the, that's all there is to it. That's all there is to life. Right. And that's the cis binary matrix. And until you learn that that is not the truth, you can't break outside of it. You can't do things to change it and make it better for people who do not fit into those two neat little boxes. And there's so many people that don't. Um, so, uh, and again, and when you don't even know that it exists, you are doing exactly what it wants you to. You are upholding the system by not being aware of it. You're just going along with what they tell you and keeping it all the same, upholding that status quo. So you need things like uh, the matrix the movies, you know, to wake people up to this and say, hey, look at the real world is not like what you've been sold. And it's okay to admit that and try to fix it. Something uh, I didn't have to, you know, hardcore the rest of revolutions last night because we changed our schedule a little bit. So um, it seems actually weirdly pertinent. So what I watched instead was the um, the third episode of the uh, Orville, which is the about a girl episode. Have either of you come across that one? I haven't seen any of the Orville yet. I okay. have not seen it, but I have heard that it uh, implies some not great things. That's why I'm bringing trans it up. folks. Yeah, yeah, that's why I'm bringing it up, because uh, like like I was like this, this. It did have a really smart idea to it. But at the same time, yeah, I was like in direct contrast to the Matrix. Um, because it has people coming on with very good intentions and and maybe being wrong about it <laughs> uh with you know our heroes because at first you're like oh yeah of course but then as you learn more about the alien culture you do really start to have to question wait a minute this is someone else this is someone else's life someone else's culture is it okay is it not okay and then and the episode actually doesn't really uh 
come to a conclusion either. So I guess that would be a, a plus on it. But uh, yeah, I wasn't even expecting to see that last night. So that was kind of an interesting contrast. <laughs> yeah, the, I can't reply to that because I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've I, only I read a summary and I haven't, I haven't seen it, so I, I don't feel uh, qualified enough to really speak on it. Okay, it's it's just very different from the Matrix. Basically, it's yeah. a um, just 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 throw it out because it is an interesting contrast, uh, especially against the Matrix. Is we have an alien species where everyone is male, so all the couples are technically gay couples. They lay eggs, um, and the and the couple on the ship uh, has a girl which is supposed to only happen every 75 years or something. So they're like, oh, we have to go get the procedure done. And the crew's like, no, don't get the procedure done. And it just becomes super like, you really don't know who's right and who's wrong in the episode. So um, on, on that, it did seem right. But it got you thinking about it at least. But yeah. Well, I, I guess the difference is the Matrix is made by two trans directors. And it says so much without being explicitly trans. And this Whereas one's written by Seth MacFarlane. By, yeah, it's something written by Seth MacFarlane trying to tackle the issue head on. So, yeah, big difference. But yeah, especially after having watched The Matrix, I, I was kind of watching it last night. Like, like I, I really appreciated that they had put that much thought into it. But I, yeah, I wasn't quite sure what the what the thought was in the end. So, Actually, so, you know, uh, that that brings up a point to mind of something that I do hope to see in uh, Resurrections is that uh, I hope that they can cast some trans people in it because they were not allowed to put trans actors into the original trilogy. Uh, they tried to with Switch in the first movie. It was supposed to be, the character was supposed to be one gender outside of the Matrix, one gender inside, and they uh, it was going to be an actual transgender character, and they were told, no, you can't do it. They wouldn't let them. And so, you know, you have... Uh, these two trans women that the world didn't know were trans women at the time, trying to tell a trans story about the trans experience and being told trans people can't be in it. Right. So it's a miracle that they got the three movies made uh, at all uh, and used, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of Warner brothers money to tell a trans story without them even knowing it. That's kind of brilliant. But um, now since uh, you know, uh, Lana Wachowski's directing it, and uh, she's out as trans, I really hope that they can put trans people on the screen because that is also important. It's, it's important to you know, tell our stories and explain to the world what it's like to be us, but it's also important to see trans people, again, for the same reason. Oh, look, I could be an actor because that trans person's an actor in this giant movie and maybe I could have that career too. So um, it's, really, it's a really important thing and I hope that they are, there are some in there somewhere. Yeah. Well, me and Matt are going to have additional podcasts to get into giant robots and philosophy and stuff, but we're an hour into our Matrix Loaded podcast and we've barely mentioned Kung Fu and car chases. <laughs> we, we've got that. We'll be getting to that in revolutions, I'm sure. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do just want to say, like, that car chase is one of the best 
ever put on film. And yeah, while you were getting on Zoom, I was just mentioning like how yeah, I was watching on Blu-ray until you said she watched on um 4K and and I was you know like noticing the raggedness of some of the digital effects, but then you know like Nolan style when you have those insane car. Uh, action with actual you know vehicles and stuff they had to build a freeway for that i believe yeah <laughs> <laughs> well my my favorite fight in the film is um the fight on the stairwell where he's fighting the merovingians goons and i think the reason that one works so well is there's very little cg just cool choreography yeah yeah so and um what what was it with the original the uh, fight choreographer? Like he didn't want to do it, and they just kept he kept yeah, making yeah, ridiculous they, demands, and they, they were like, wanted yes, to get, you can have that. There was a Hong Kong fight director they really wanted to get in, but he didn't want to do it. So he he was making demands, oh, thinking that he was a polite way of saying I won't do it, saying like, okay, I'll do it if I have complete control over all the fights and I get paid five million dollars and blah blah blah. And they were just like, yes, yes, okay, yes. <laughs> so he got to the point where he's like, well, I guess I've just got to make this film because they've given me everything I could possibly demand. So, and it, yeah, obviously it paid off because it reinvented yeah, Western it. action cinema. Got so. their money's worth in that. <laughs> like the famous fight in this one is the Burley Brawl. Yeah. Um, which is great in a lot of ways, but also has like extended 10 second shots where Neo looks like a PS2 character. I've seen YouTube videos that make that clear. Yeah. And and what I couldn't remember exactly what was wonky about that scene. So I will give watching it this time. I was like, I don't remember what's wrong with this. I know something's wrong with it, but I'm not seeing it right now. So I guess it's okay. Well, one thing I've noticed is for me and a lot of the people I talk to about films and stuff, we are also gamers. So we're very used to seeing computer generated imagery. Whereas I think a lot of the general movie going public, what I think of as terrible CG, I don't think normally normal people notice it as easily. Um, so there's very often there's films like this where if you go on the internet, everyone's like, oh, this is the worst CG I've ever seen. But like when my uncle watches the film, he's like, no, it looked fine to me. And you've got to remember that you're in the bubble of people who look really closely at really dumb shit like this. Yeah, for me, I guess the, the biggest crime for cg is the lack of mass the lack of tactile look like you mm. kind of notice when that happens so um yeah it does seem to be hard um even now even brand new modern stuff that's coming out it's gotten better but there's still a sort of weightless quality to full cgi characters right they don't they don't seem to have the same weight that like uh real people do and so um that's a thing you know that they're still uh working out and it was definitely back when uh reloaded came out they were really pushing the envelope it was you know stuff that nobody had done and somebody's got to do it first somebody's got to try and i'm sure they built off of that and you know maybe it helped that huge increase we've seen in special effects and how fast they've gotten better and how much more amazing they are now but um at the time I remember when I first saw it thinking it looked amazing because nothing had looked like that before. And so, mm. yeah, it hasn't aged that great because now the effects have grown so much, but um, I still really enjoy watching uh, the site. I think, or the fight, I, mean, I think it's super well choreographed. It's really exciting. It tells a great story all the way through it. So um, I think it still works. It's just, oh, you know, any, any special effects uh, that are done with CGI are going to look dated, you know, 15 years on. Well, I think, um, no 
level of CGI fidelity can fix bad directing. So a lot of when you talk about these characters looking weightless and stuff, it's because the director hasn't thought about it in advance. They've just thought, well, in post, we'll chuck in a monster. Um, Whereas the one I always go back to, and I know they're not regarded as the best films, but the Transformers films look real because Michael Bay was making the film with the intention of putting these robots in from the start. And he made sure that all of the carnage around them is real practical effects. And so everything lands like there's a physical object on the screen. Um, And that's the difference between the best monster movies and the worst monster movies, between the best, you know, robots, aliens, whatever, is the director and the cast have thought about where is the physical presence of this thing. Whereas if you don't think about that when you're filming the actors, then when it's given to the effects house, they've just got to squeeze it in where they can and it's not going to feel like it has weight. Something um, that we definitely forget these days all of us having just watched as digitally as possible and noticed it is you know this did supposed to go through the final step of being put onto film and getting a little film grain and then project in the theater and then it looks about right um Mm -hmm. you know i make music and actually i'm talking through it now i'm I'm talking to you through a uh, vacuum tube preamp because you know i use it to like dirty up my sounds a little bit while i'm making music (laughs) (laughs) well yeah it's like um you know, the um, the original uh, Star Trek and even Star Trek The Next Generation were redone in uh, HD, right? And they look beautiful. All the special effects were redone. You watch them and it's stunning. But when you watch the regular uh, like shots, not the special effects, not the ships, just inside people talking, uh, the colors are great. The costumes look amazing. But you can see a crack in the set that you could never see on a little, you know, tiny CRT TV. You can see that, like, the makeup on people doesn't go all the way down beneath their collar or on one of them, like, some chest hairs coming out from his collar that you would never see on this tiny little TV that it was shot for, you know, back at the, in the day. So uh, even, yeah, when you, you know, they rescan in the film and it uh, make it HD or even better. Some that stuff was just meant to be seen at a lower resolution, and so we're looking at it now through these, you know, 4K Ultra HD screens and being like, why does that not look great? Well, it wasn't <laughs> designed to look great on this, you know. So, um, before we pull the ship into the the park, does that make sense? Do we pull ships in the parks? I don't know. <laughs> in Star Trek Four, they landed the ship in a park. Okay, there we go. That's before true. We... They did. Before we get the before he slingshot the bird of prey around the sun, <laughs> is there anything else we want to throw out on? Uh, I guess specifically the middle movie. Every, the wheels are turning. That's cool. Yeah, I'm just thinking: is there anything <laughs> specific I want to throw out on this movie? I guess it's its biggest flaw or crime is just being a middle movie. It's the middle child, is it? Being Although, an only child myself. It's also one of those, like, um, sometimes that can play to a film's advantage, like in Empire Strikes Back or The Two Towers. Because they're the middle one, they don't have the burden of bringing in the landing. They can just do cool things and then end on a cliffhanger. And this film does that. So, like I said, when Reloaded came out, I don't remember anyone being down on it. Maybe people were a little confused. But most people seemed into it. And then based on whether or not you think Revolutions does nail that landing, then taints how you feel about Reloaded. Yeah, Reloaded has some nice space to breathe, I guess, which which yeah. I, you, 
I, I that's, that's what you do. I, I think, you know, people, when it goes wrong is when people really try and overstuff the middle one. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I mean, this one's not lacking in stuffing and, uh, you know, I mean, you know, cool stuffing, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. but um, it's not like they're being minimalist, but yeah, this is the one where you can kind of inhabit the world that this movie creates most easily because in the first and the third one, you know, same with back to the future, right? We're just, you know, down to business in, in the first and third installments. Right. Uh, Tilly, any final thoughts on this one, especially if, if uh, again, I haven't been reading the tweets, so if, if we've missed some, uh, you know, real corker there. Um, well, there, <laughs> I examined so much of it, they go so deep, it's kind of hard to, uh, you know, mention things that might have been missed. But I guess um, the one thing I would want people to take away from Reloaded, if you're watching it, is that more than the other Matrix movies. This one is about the experience of existing in the world as a trans person and how hard it is for us um, and what, what we do about it, what it does to us. Um, you know, existing in the world as a trans person is, was so hard, it totally screwed up the Merovingian, right? He is the way he is because he couldn't become his true self on the inside. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the Burly Brawl, that is just... Uh, Neo out existing as himself in everything that society throws at him. It's misgendering, it's dead naming, it's legislating us out of existence. It's, you know, I mean, I was surprised to discover this, but, uh, and I didn't discover until after I had come out and transitioned and I started, you know, more things become obvious to you then. There are still 35 states in the US where it is legal to use the trans panic defense in assault or murder which is basically saying, oh yes, I killed them, but I found out they were a trans person and I panicked. And the state goes, yeah, that's fine. That's a legal defense you can use. And 35 states in this country still allow that. And it's like every little thing like that, there's so much of it. Um, You know, we can't go through um, security at an airport to board an airplane without either outing ourselves or getting molested by people because we don't fit the binary that they have to press when you go through the scanners. You either have a male button or a female button and we don't fit those. Our bodies don't match that. And I'm so, there's a million things like that. I wish I could, I had the time to tell you all of them but there's so many of them. And that's what that burly brawl is is that it's every aspect of society coming for you. So um, if you, I mean, I would love it. If, if you want more info, you can look me up on Twitter, Tilly Bridges. If you just search my handle and uh, Matrix, all of my threads will come up. You'll find them. You can read through them and get really deep uh, into all of this if you're interested. But um, yeah, if there's one thing you just rewatch the movie with in mind, it's just that this is what it's like. This is how hard it is to just live as yourself in this world when you don't fit into the two boxes they say you have to. Yeah, I, I definitely recommend going and, and reading those threads um especially if like me and matt you are a cisgendered person and a lot of this has gone over your head the first time um you will definitely learn a lot not all of it pleasant but all of it very true um and i don't know if you have any plans for this tilly but i would love to read it in an easier format than a twitter thread <laughs> one day <laughs> be that a book or even just a website somewhere <laughs> Yes, it's it's something that I, I have thought about uh, at the at the moment. I'm just trying to get 
through them all, you know, get through all of my notes, get it all written out. And then uh, at some point in the future, I definitely would like to do something else with them to make them a little bit uh, easier to read or for people who are not on Twitter, uh, easier for them to access. So. No, I mean, an, an hour and a half ago, I like I like understood how this movie would connect. But I was like, hey, how exactly do you get there? So, you know, and I'm like, oh, geez, you've explained it. Yeah, now. And I'm like, it's like kind of like, how do I how did I miss that? You know, the, the, the only thing I've had that comes close is when we were looking at the Terminator films. And I realized the reason one and two feel so much more meaningful than the later ones is because they're very deliberately about motherhood and then when the what well, i consider the third one dark fate came out and it's about oh this is a film about how women don't have to be mothers and right yet, yeah that's a really good point i felt dark fate worked uh, much better than any of the other sequels and i, I really like dark fate and you're right it, they're about more than just the surface level story they're they, they have something important they're trying to say to the world uh, there was a point a few years ago when they were talking about doing a Matrix 4, but without either of the Wachowskis involved. I think that's actually pronounced Wachowski. I think I've been saying it wrong. Um, but I've never heard it said out loud by anyone other than people reading it. So, um, But if it had been made by just some other director who had not understood the allegory, the metaphor, angle, then it would have felt like Terminator Genesis or Terminator Salvation or something. Because once you realize how key that is to the original three films, then it, like I said at the start, how you can accept it at a very surface level and go deeper. But the film isn't made that way. It's made the other way around. You right. start from that metaphor and everything is built on that. So you right. don't that, have that, that foundation. It wouldn't have felt like a matrix. Exactly. Film. If you took the, the trans allegory out of any of the three original movies, you wouldn't even have anywhere remotely near to the same movie. So much of what's in there is there only because of the allegory. And you would lose all just like so much of it by pulling that out. They wouldn't be the same story at all. So um, yeah, I'm glad that there's uh, nobody else involved with them. Yeah, because um, a few years ago when nobody was attached, I was completely uninterested in seeing another Matrix movie. And I saw the trailer just, actually, I didn't care until a month ago because I saw the trailer. And I was like, oh, Matrix, okay, I'll watch it. Oh, Karen's back. Carrie's man's back. That's cool. But then when I became excited is when the directing credit came up. I was like, why is it only one? But, you know, um, uh, apparently Lily is, has given her blessings and is, uh working on a, a show running a showtime show or something <laughs> yeah is it i thought it was lily who is directing online who's not no lily has a show i feel really bad i cannot remember the name of it at the moment but she is working on i think it is showtime uh, she has a show that she's running or co-show running um and so it's lana that uh co-wrote and directed uh the fourth movie oh i had it completely the wrong way around and Luke, I just uh, I, I was taking a dive there and worried that I was about to get completely the wrong way around. But <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's a toss, uh, toss of the coin there. Um, also, yeah, um, yeah uh, Tilly, you mentioned that you, you, you saved me earlier about 30 minutes ago. You, you mentioned it was Lana directing. So I put yeah, that you did. in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, well, I guess uh Tilly has already given us the, the links and stuff. Uh, Luke, do you want to do the, the quick thing for this cast? Yeah, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find us on Twitter at MLSFSPod. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
all the places where you can find podcasts. Just search Matt and Luke Sci-Fi Sanctuary and you'll find us. Make sure you like and subscribe, rate and review, tell your friends, blah, 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 blah. If you want to help keep it online, you can go to patreon.com slash podcastio podcastius and you can throw us a dollar a month and maybe you'll get episodes early when me and Matt get around to editing them. And because I feel like I really have to clarify it this week, that's a reference to Peep Show. It's not a reference to Harry Potter. We would never reference anything written by J.K. Rowling in the year 2021. (laughs) And thank you for that. (laughs) It took me a second there when you said Harry Potter. You had to had to take that. Yeah. The the. (laughs) Okay, I get that now, but. Thanks for coming in because, yeah, uh, you know, sometimes we get an insane fun tangents and sometimes we we get our minds blown real time. And that's certainly what happened today. So, you know, uh, the Matrix blew the mind and and, and my own podcast of of the Matrix has now done the same. So that's kind of cool. Well, thank you for having me. It was uh, a joy. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Like when we found out about the sequel, I was like, oh, we should do a Matrix month. And it was like, there's absolutely no way we could do all four films and not have a trans guest. So I'm really glad that you were happy to join us. My so, pleasure. Uh, so well, Luke, which, Matt, door, this part, which door? This part of the podcast is inevitable. Resurrections.